distinguishing traits of Christian character. Divine charity, saith the apostle, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4. It is only when, as the elect of God, good men put on bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, that they exhibit the power and sweetness of genuine religion. Colossians 3 verse 12. It is only when seated in the lowest place and clothed with humility that they exhibit the amiableness of their gracious character. Well, may we call humility a heaven-born grace. She is indeed the daughter of the skies, the meek-eyed child of Jesus, and dwells only with him who, like herself, is born from above. Does the reader possess this humble spirit? Does he know anything of this childlike, Christ-like disposition and conduct? Has he ever been truly abased before God? Has he ever sunk down to that abyss of self-abasement to which his guilt might sink him? Has he degraded himself as low as his sin has degraded him? Has he ever taken the place which belongs to him as a sinner against God? What would he think of God if he should abase him as low as guilt and the curse require him to lie? And as it respects your contacts with your fellow men in the world, do you evince anything like this meekness and lowliness of demeanor? You recollect the reproof our Lord gave his disciples when he took a little child and set it in the midst of them and said, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye can in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. Matthew 18, verse 3 Have you been assimilated to this sweet spirit? Tell me, reader, do you love the praise of men more than the praise of God? If so, can you be a Christian? How can ye believe who receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? John 5.44 Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. Proverbs 26 verse 12 Self-denial Another evidence of Christian character is the spirit and practice of self-denial. Self-denial consists in the voluntary renunciation of everything which is inconsistent with the glory of God, the highest good of our fellow men. It does not imply the voluntary renunciation of good, nor the voluntary toleration of evil as being desirable in themselves considered, though it does imply both as being desirable all things considered. There is no absurdity in the proposition that a thing may be very unpleasant in its own nature, but taking all things into view may be very desirable. Neither does self-denial imply the renunciation of all regard to oneself, for desire of happiness and aversion to misery are inseparable from human nature. The natural principle of self-love does not constitute the sin of selfishness, for there is no moral turpitude in being influenced by the anticipation of good or the apprehension of evil, provided I am not influenced by these considerations supremely. Nor is there sin in regarding my own interest, provided I do not put a higher estimate upon it than it demands." 
Self-denial is diametrically opposite to supreme selfishness. Selfishness is making a man's self his own center, the beginning and end of all that he does. It is difficult with the Bible in our hands or upon the principles of sound philosophy not to acknowledge the distinction between affections which are supremely selfish and truly unselfish to be both plain and important. There is no need of the aid of metaphysical discussion to establish the proposition that no man ought to regard his own happiness more than everything else, and that the man who does so possesses none of the spirit of the gospel. The affections of men must be placed on some one object which is paramount to every other. Two objects of supreme delight there cannot be. Two paramount principles of actions there cannot be. There is no intermediate object between God and self that can draw forth the highest and strongest affections of the soul. As there is no such thing as a creature's going out of himself without rising as high as the glory of God, so there is no such thing as a creature's going out of God without descending as low as himself. Other objects may be loved, but if they are not loved merely as the means of self-gratification, they are not loved supremely. Affections that do not terminate on God terminate on self. Men who do not seek the things that are Jesus Christ seek their own. Inordinate self-love is the ruling passion of their hearts and the governing principle of their lives. They love themselves, not as they ought to love themselves, but supremely. They set up their own private good as the highest object of desire and pursuit. Their affections operate in a very narrow circle. They have no ultimate regard but to themselves. They have but one interest, and that is their own. A supreme regard to their own happiness is the mainspring of all that they can do for God of all that they can do for themselves, and all that they do for their fellow men. It is needless to say that with this spirit, Christian self-denial has no communion. This heavenly grace is the result of a supreme attachment to a higher interest than our own. It terminates on nothing short of the highest good, and in pursuing this, terminates on an object large enough to gratify the strongest desires of the most benevolent mind. He who is not a stranger to the spirit of self-denial has learned to make his own interests bend to the interest of God's kingdom, and that from supreme regard to the interests of God's kingdom, not from supreme regard to himself. Once he denied Christ for himself, now he denies himself for Christ. Once he lived to himself, now he lives to God. No duty is so hard that he is not willing and resolved to perform it. No sin so sweet that he is not willing and resolved to forsake it. Nothing is too dear to give to Christ. Nothing too great to be cheerfully sacrificed for the promotion of his glory. He knows he is but a point in the universe of God, an atom in the sum of being, a single member of Christ's mystical body, and is willing that God should lift up or cast him down at his pleasure. His own advancement is as a feather when put in the balance against the honor of Christ and the good of his kingdom. Such is the spirit of self-denial. It is the result of a calm, deliberate, invincible attachment to the highest good, flowing forth in the voluntary renunciation of everything that is inconsistent with the glory of God and the good of our fellow men. 
that this is the scriptural idea of self-denial would be easy to illustrate by a multitude of examples. This is the elevated spirit that prompted the father of the faithful to offer up the son of promise that bore the three worthies of Babylon to the burning fiery furnace and that led the apostles and martyrs to glory and tribulation. It is born the test of ridicule and reproach, stood undaunted before the scourge and the prison, triumphed amidst the light of the faggot, and smiled at the point of the sword. This is the spirit which shone with such signal luster in the sufferings and death of our blessed Lord. It was eminently the characteristic of this divine personage that in all he did and suffered he pleased not himself. He sought not his own glory, but the glory of the Father who sent him. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he often anticipated the day of his death and in itself considered, earnestly desired to be delivered from that fatal hour. He knew the malice of his enemies and expected to feel the weight of it in his last sufferings. He foresaw all the circumstances that would add poignancy and agony. But does he shrink from the dreadful undertaking? You see him steadfastly setting his face to go to Jerusalem. You hear him telling his disciples that he must go. He must suffer. He must be killed. But do you hear him complain? Go to Gethsemane and there behold the Son of God under the most clear and awful view of his approaching crucifixion and learn what it is to deny yourself for the sake of advancing the Father's glory. Listen to the language of a heart already broken with grief. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. This body sweats, as it were, great drops of blood. The hidings of my father's face are enough to bury me in eternal darkness. The guilt of this falling world will sink my feeble frame to the grave. O oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass away from me. Now is my soul troubled. The hour is come, and what shall I say? Father, Save me from this hour? But for this cause came I to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. This was carrying self-denial to its highest pitch. So pure was the selfless love of the Savior that the sweetest feelings of his heart would have remained forever ungratified without the privilege of expiring on the cross. This too is a spirit which is no less strongly enforced by precept than example. How often are believers exhorted not to seek their own, not to live unto themselves, and whether they live to live unto the Lord, or whether they die to die unto the Lord. That charity which the apostle represents as the distinguishing characteristic of believers is self-denying. It seeketh not her own. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 If any man saith the divine Savior will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. Matthew 16 verses 24 and 25. 
One would think it difficult after such an explication to be long in doubt as to the nature of one of the most decisive evidences of real religion. We can hardly turn to a page in the Bible without being convinced that the grand distinction between true religion and false is that the one is self-denying, the other is supremely selfish. For whether we be beside ourselves, says the Apostle to the Corinthians, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 13 and 15. Those who are in the flesh live unto themselves. Those who are in the Spirit live unto Christ. There are but two moral characters that are essentially different, and this is the radical difference between them. Here, then, you have another criterion of Christian character. It is not supposed that in the present state we shall find self-denial unalloyed with selfishness. Still, in the affections and conduct of every child of God, the spirit of self-denial is a prominent feature. He who possesses most of the spirit possesses most of the spirit of his divine master. In the same proportion which the glory of God and the welfare of his kingdom take the place of personal advancement, does vital religion predominate in the soul. The question has often been put, How far must a man deny himself for the good of others and the glory of God? The thoughts already suggested appear to give us a satisfactory reply to this inquiry. But if they do not, I answer, just as far as the good of others and the glory of God require him to deny himself. So long as this is a criterion, it is impossible that self-denial can be carried too far, either in this world or the world to come. But must it be carried so far as to make a man willing to be damned for the glory of God? I cannot express better my whole soul on this point than by quoting an anecdote which the great Witherspoon introduces as expressive of his own views on this interesting subject. A man in a high position who had been a great profligate, afterward became a great penitent. He composed a little piece of poetry after his conversion, the leading sentiment of which in his own language was to the following purpose. Great God, thy judgments are full of righteousness. Thou takest pleasure in the exercise of mercy. But I have sinned to such an height that justice demands my destruction, and mercy itself seems to solicit my perdition. Disdain my tears, strike the blow, and execute thy judgments. I am willing to submit and adore even perishing the equity of thy procedure. But on what place will the stroke fall that is not covered with the blood of Christ? The monastery and the cloister are not the only evidences that there is much of the show of self-denial where there is none of its spirit. Men may deny themselves in a thousand instances from no other motive than that they expect to be the gainers by it. You cannot know whether your self-denial is genuine or whether it is spurious without knowing whether it is founded upon a supreme attachment to the glory of God. To deny yourself from a supreme regard to a higher interest than your own is to possess the spirit of the gospel.
Is this then the principle which regulates your conduct, both toward God and toward man? Which do you pursue most, your interest or your duty? Which do you think of most, your interest or your duty? Can you renounce your ease, your profit, your honor, when they come in competition with your duty? Can you renounce everything which is inconsistent with the glory of God and the highest good of your fellow men? Are these the natural breathings of your heart? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Is the highest interest of this kingdom identified with the object of your highest wish and with your most vigorous exertion? Is the cause of Christ your concern, the dishonor of Christ your affliction? The cross of Christ, your glory, is so. You are not strangers to the spirit of self-denial. You are not without conclusive evidence that you are born from above. The more you forget yourselves in a supreme regard for God's glory, the more will you advance your own interest, both in this world and that which is to come. But the more you seek a selfish, private, separate interest in opposition to the glory of God, the more are you seeking an interest which God is determined to destroy. Devotion to Divine Honor and Glory of God Intimately connected with the spirit of self-denial is supreme devotion to the honor and glory of God. From the formation of the first angel of light down to the period when the heavens shall pass away as a scroll, the creator of the ends of the earth had his eye steadfastly fixed on the same grand object. As all things are of him, so all will be to him. Romans 11.36 He who made all things for himself cannot fail to pursue the end for which he made them, and to obtain it at last. When the proceedings of the last day shall have been closed, when the assembled world shall have entered upon the unvarying retributions of eternity, when the heavens and the earth shall have passed away, and a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, shall have come down from God out of heaven, he that sitteth upon the throne shall say, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. In the winding up of the scene, it will appear that God himself is the first and the last, not merely the efficient, but the final cause of all things. The vast plan which has for its object nothing less than the brightest manifestation of the divine glory has an unalienable right to the most unreserved devotedness of every intelligent being. To the advancement of this plan, God therefore requires every intelligent being to be voluntarily subservient. All the strength and ardor of affection which we are capable of exercising must be concentrated here. Every faculty, every thought, every volition, every design must be devoted to this great cause. The injunction is explicit. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 now the heart of depraved man is obstinately averse to such a course of feelings and conduct. Instead of being supremely attached to God and the good of his kingdom, 
Men are by nature lovers of their own selves. And here lies the controversy between man and his maker. God requires men to regard his glory as the great end of their existence. But they disregard his requisitions and prefer their own will and ends to his. This is the disposition of every natural heart. Hence, the mortification of this spirit and the supreme devotion of the heart and life to the service and glory of God is evidence of a radical change of moral character. It was the character of Jesus Christ that he went about doing good. God is served and glorified by a life which is actively engaged in seeking the good of others. Where the heart is seriously and intensely interested in the service of God, it cannot be satisfied without accomplishing something for the cause of God in the earth. Our Lord alludes to this evidence of discipleship when he says, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. John 15 verse 8 the true Christian possesses such impressions of his absolute dependence and has such a view of God's entire right to him that he feels that all he is and all that he has belong to God. And hence his heart in the first place is devoted to the service of God. He has a sacred relish for the duties and designs which he knows every creature of God ought to accomplish. The service of God is no irksome employment, but one in which he feels heartily and cheerfully engaged. There is nothing to which his affections are so strongly attached and in which he takes so much delight as in doing good. He loves the work of pleasing and glorifying his Redeemer and of doing good to his fellow men. My meat, saith the Lord Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 4, verse 34. And the disciple, though far from coming up to the high standard of his master's example, is in this respect like his Lord. There is a pleasure, a satisfaction of soul he enjoys in the service of God which no other employment can impart. No matter what position he may occupy in the world, he may be a minister of the gospel, an officer in the church, or a private Christian. He may be a magistrate, or a subject. He may be rich or poor. He may be a legislator, a lawyer, or a physician. He may be a farmer, a merchant, a mechanic, or common laborer. He may be a seaman, or a landsman, a master, or a servant. And if he is a child of God, his heart will be bound up in the work of doing good and in pleasing and serving God. With his heart he will also give his thoughts to this interesting concern. This is the ultimate end which will absorb his attention. His thoughts are not indeed always immediately on this object because this is impossible. He is like a man who sets out on a journey. The place of his destination is not in his thoughts. Every foot of ground he passes over but it is the point to which his thoughts are perpetually recurring, and from which they are with difficulty diverted and toward which all his course maintains an habitual, if not an invariable, tendency. 
the Christian habitually carries the great object of his existence into the whole course of human life. In seasons of relaxation, in seasons of business, it rests upon his mind. He thinks and studies and contrives and consults how he may, in the best manner and with the greatest success, accomplish his master's work. With his thoughts, he will also consecrate his time to the service of God. All his time belongs to God. And though it may be his duty to devote the most of it to secular pursuits, he considers it all as consecrated time. No child of God can be habitually idle or waste his time in empty relaxation and vain amusements. Show me the man who lives at his ease and feels that he has time enough for anything, and yet devotes it to nothing, and if to anything to that which is foreign to the business of a creature who is a possessor only of one short life, and that redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and for which he is shortly to give up his last account. And I will show you a man who is a Christian only in name. The professed Christian, who attends the dance and assemblies and parties of pleasure, whose precious time is consumed and killed in the perusal of novels, romances, and plays, who is nowhere so happy as at the theater, the horse race, or the card table, is a miserable deceiver, and more miserably deceived. But it is not the mere omission of crimes of this aggravated sort which constitutes a Christian improvement of time, the state and growth of grace in his own soul, the spiritual condition of his family, his friends, his neighbors, the church, and the world, together with the ignorance, the immorality, the vice, the want, and suffering of his fellow men, these will redeem his time from idleness, from amusements, and often from secular labor. There is one portion of time which every Christian holds dear. The Sabbath is his delight. He anticipates it. He enjoys it. He reflects upon it as the sweetest day of all the seven. There are no hours of which he is more frugal none which he turns to better account than the hours of the sacred Sabbath. With his time, the true believer also devotes his property to God. If there be those who have no property to devote, they form an exception to this remark. But while I say this, I would not forget that our Lord once passed a high estimation upon a poor widow, because she helped the cause of sacred charity by throwing into his treasury two mites, when it was literally all her living. Even the poor may give to the Lord and trust in him, who has promised that those who love him shall not lack any good thing. Psalms 84 verse 11 But what shall be said of men who are blessed with competency, men who are blessed with abundance, and have nothing to spare for Christ, Men who can behold a world lying in wickedness, and pagan and Christian lands famishing for the bread of life, and withhold the light of that great salvation. Men who can see the woes and hear the lamentations of hard-working people in poverty, without a liberal heart and a communicating hand, but that the love of God dwelleth not in them. Christian liberality is one of the indispensable characteristics of true religion, and whenever it is lacking, there is a mournful measure, if not an entire absence, of the love of God in the soul. 
Professing Christians sometimes avoid the rigid application of this truth by persuading themselves that covetousness is their besetting sin. And has it come to this, that the child of God has any sin so besetting that the love of duty does not gradually diminish and eventually subdue its power? What besetting sin ever bore such sway in the bosom of a child of God as to exert an influence habitually paramount to the love of Christ? What would be thought of a professed Christian who should say that the worship of idols is his besetting sin, or the lust of the flesh, or the love of wine, or bitterness to his neighbor, or dishonesty, or theft is his besetting sin? Would this convince you that an idolater, an adulterer, a glutton, a drunkard, a liar, or a thief is a Christian? No more is a man who makes an idol of his gold. Colossians 3 verses 5 and 6 Ye cannot serve God in mammon. Matthew 6 verse 24 The love of God and of duty in the mind of a regenerated man obtains and habitually preserves the ascendancy. Where gold and not duty determines a choice of the conduct of men, the religion of the gospel is too hardy master to be submitted to. And shall I not say that with their heart, their thoughts, their time and property, the disciples of Christ consecrate their influence and prayers to God? Yes, the cause of God is with them the grand pursuit. If you would warm and animate their minds, if you would awaken their resolution, fortitude, and zeal, if you would excite their souls to fervent importunity in prayer, it must be by presenting to their thoughts some concern that has a discernible connection with the honor and glory of God. Whatever may be the life of others, theirs is devoted to Him, who loved them and gave Himself for them. Whatever may be the design of others, their purpose is to glorify God in their bodies and spirits which are His. Whatever may be the enjoyment of others, they account not that to be living at all which is not devoted to the great purpose for which life was bestowed. As to the motives of such a life, it has been incidentally sufficiently developed. The deceiver thought that a man might be devoted to the service of God from motives of self-interest and yet give no evidence of piety. Doth Job serve God for naught? Job 1 verse 9 There is, says Dr. Witherspoon, certainly in every renewed heart a sense of duty independent of personal and selfish interest. Were this not the case, even supposing a desire of reward or fear of punishment should dispose to obedience, it would plainly be only a change of life and not a change of heart. It is beyond all question, indeed, that our true interest is inseparable from our duty, so that self-seeking is self-losing. But still a sense of duty must have the precedency, otherwise it changes its nature and is no duty at all. We entreat you, then, in inquiring into the evidence of your salvation to ask yourselves whether you are supremely devoted to to God? Is it the first and highest desire of your soul to honor God? Is it incited by the hope of reward or the love of God in duty? Is the glory of God the end of your conduct? 
And do you pursue it not from regard to yourself, but from regard to God? Do you find your highest happiness in your duty? The Spirit of Prayer Another evidence of regeneration is the spirit of prayer. When we say that the spirit of prayer is conclusive evidence of Christian character, we feel under obligation to point out wherein that spirit consists. We are not to forget that there is such a thing as drawing nigh unto God with the mouth and honoring Him with the lips, while the heart is far from Him, Mark 7, verse 6. The hearts of men may be as stupid and unfeeling, as proud and as self-righteous. They may be in the exercise of as sensible opposition to the character of the Most High, to the law and the gospel, while offering up the most solemn expressions of homage, as they are when God is not in all their thoughts. But it is not so with the righteous. His prayers goeth not forth out of feigned lips. Psalm 17, verse 1. With the scriptural worshiper, the heart feels what the lips express. The spirit of prayer is humble. It flows from a broken and contrite heart. The publican could not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Luke 18, verse 13. Every sentiment of his heart constrains him to make the affecting confession. Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, for my iniquities are increased over my head, and my trespasses grown up into the heavens. Ezra 9, verse 6. The spirit of prayer is also believing. Though the child of God has an impressive sense of personal unworthiness and ill desert, yet he knows that he has a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who is touched with the feeling of his infirmities. And he may therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that he may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. But the spirit of prayer is also submissive. The suppliant prefers the will of God to his own. He pours forth his heart with the affectionate submission of a servant. He is prepared to be accepted or to be rejected in his petitions. He approaches the mercy seat with the desire that God would exercise his wisdom and grace in granting or denying his requests. This is a spirit of prayer, sincere, humble, believing, submissive. Other prayer than this the Bible does not require and God will not accept. This is a spirit of genuine devotion a spirit which you cannot be conscious of possessing without the consciousness of your reconciliation to God. Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, verse 6. It may not be amiss, while we are upon this subject, to spend a few minutes looking at the question, what evidence does the long-continued practice of the external duty of prayer afford of the existence of vital religion in the heart? We do not mean by this statement necessarily to exclude the spirit from the form of prayer.
If we did, the question would be at an end. What evidence does the long-continued practice of the external form afford of the existence of the internal spirit? Men may pray much and yet not be Christians. They may pray in public and in their families and still not be Christians. This they may do to gratify their pride, to be seen of men, to maintain the character of Christians in the view of the world, to silence the clamors of conscience, or to support a hypocritical hope. But whether men persevere in the habitual practice of secret prayer without good evidence of Christian character is a question which I dare not answer in the negative. Neither would I venture to answer it unhesitatingly in the affirmative. This much of the Bible will surely warrant us to say that men who are not Christians will be exceedingly apt to neglect and in the end wholly to abandon the practice of secret prayer. Job demands concerning the hypocrite, Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call upon God? Job 27 verse 10 Wherever you find the habitual performance of secret prayer for a long course of years, there is some reason to believe you find the breathings of the newborn soul. There you may hope there are hungerings and thirstings after righteousness. There you will discover a heart that is not in pursuit of assurance merely, but grace, not safety only, but holiness. There you will usually, if not always, discover one not muttering over a few unmeaning sentences as devoid of life as a loathsome carcass is of the life-giving spirit, but one whom the Spirit of God has taught to pray, because he is weak and needs strength, because he is tempted and needs support, because he is in want and needs supply, because he is a sinner and needs mercy. If these remarks are just, it is not impertinent to ask my readers whether they practice the duty of secret prayer. We do not ask whether you pray in secret now and then, whether you perform this duty on the Lord's Day or some occasional seasons of unusual alarm or solemnity. Is this your habitual practice? Has it been your habitual practice since you hope you were brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light? No matter how punctual you are in other duties, no matter what evidence you have of your conversion from any other quarter, if you have not this, you may set all other down for naught. The lack of this is decisive evidence against you, even if the possession of it is not decisive evidence in your favor. Prayer has been often styled as a Christian's breath. It is eminently so. A prayerless Christian? No, it cannot be. It is a mark of the highest delusion, of the grossest stupidity, to cherish the hope of having made your peace with God, and at the same time to live in the neglect of secret prayer. Who that has the least pretension to religion can presume to live without seeking the favor, without deprecating the wrath, and without realizing the presence of him in whom he lives and moves and has his being? To live without prayer is emphatically to live without God in the world. See Jonathan Edwards' sermon on the subject, Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Secret Prayer. 
but I would give one caution to a certain class of my readers. There are not lacking those who live in constant doubt and trembling because they do not enjoy the constant presence of God in the uniform fervency of affection in their seasons of prayer. Real Christians have periods of coldness which chill the spirit of devotion, such as the power of indwelling sin that God's own children are sometimes carried far down the current. To the shame and guilt of God's people, we are constrained to make this affecting acknowledgement. Still, real Christians cannot live in the neglect of prayer. Nay, more, those who do not possess the Spirit and live in the habitual performance of the duty are in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. The moment a man begins to live in the neglect of prayer, that moment he should take the alarm. May it then be said of you, as it was of Saul of Tarsus, Behold, he prayeth. Acts 9 verse 11 If so, then you like him may be a chosen vessel. Maintain a constant and uniform intimacy with the throne of grace. And for the sake of our great high priest, God will put his fear into your hearts, and you shall not depart from him. Jeremiah 32, verse 40 Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. James 4, verse 8 Keep near to the fountainhead, and with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Isaiah 12, verse 3 Brotherly love Another evidence is love to the brethren. The gospel breathes the spirit of love. Love is a fulfilling of its precepts, the evidence of its power, the pledge of its joys, and the ripe fruit of the spirit. A new commandment saith our Lord to his disciples, Give I unto you, that ye love one another. John 13:34, And this is his commandment that we should believe on His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. 1 John 3.23 This is emphatically a new commandment. It has a new object, not specified in the original law of love, and obviously a different affection than that which is required in the moral law. Brotherly love is an affection which is limited to particular characters, there can be no doubt but the children of God are kindly affection toward all men because Christian benevolence runs parallel with rational being. Genuine love to our neighbor is extended to all according to their character and circumstances. It blesses those who curse us and does good to those who hate us. This, however, is not the distinguishing nature of brotherly love. Brotherly love differs materially from the love of a general feeling of good will. It is a love of good men, and for their goodness only, and extends only to the followers of Christ. It is an affection which is directed toward the excellence of religion, and consists in a delight in holiness. Everyone that is of the truth, everyone that is born of God, of whatever condition or nation under heaven, is to be loved with this affection. There is something in the character of every child of God that reflects the image of his heavenly Father. 
and it is this that attracts the eye and wins the heart. There is something which is amiable and lovely, and it is this loveliness that gives a spring to the affections and draws forth the hearts of God's people towards God himself. The children of God are partakers of the divine nature. From bearing the image of the earthly, they now bear the image of the heavenly. God has imparted to them a portion of his own loveliness. He has formed them new creatures of his free and distinguishing grace. He has made them more excellent than their neighbors, and hence they are lovely. They are the excellent of the earth. God loves them. Christ loves them. The Holy Spirit loves them. Angels love them, and they love each other. It is around them that the virtues cluster, from them that the graces of heaven are reflected, though shaded, and very often darkened by debasing and reproachful sins. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.